So 1 Peter, and uh, to set the scene on this quite remarkable portion of the Word of God. And I want to begin, as I said, by putting in place some of the background and then just to spend a time thinking about Peter himself, the one that the Lord used to write this letter and uh, the one to follow as well. July the 19th, 64 AD is probably not a date that many of you are familiar with, but it's a very infamous date in history because it was the day that Rome was consumed in a terrible fire. And a densely populated city with narrow streets and wooden buildings, the fire just swept through the city with devastating ease. And the first three days and nights as the fire raged, it just seemed as though there was no end to the devastation that was going to happen. There were one or two times when the people thought that it had been brought under control, but the fire would then revive and would break out even more. And it would destroy most of the homes of the people and most of the city itself. And it was not long before rumors began to circulate in the city, many believing that the emperor of the day, Nero, a brutal maniac, had started the fire himself. You see, Nero was obsessed with building. And so to build the city as he wanted, he had to destroy what was already there. And it is said that as the fire raged, that he sat watching the inferno go through the city from a viewing gallery in a tower that had been built. And historians say that he thought that the flames were beautiful and he laughed with delight as this happened. And as I said, whenever the fire seemingly was dying down, orders were given for new fires to be purposely started. The people were devastated. Not only did they lose their homes, not only were so many lives lost, but they also lost, as they saw it, their culture. Many of the great social places of meeting, the great temples, pagan temples and shrines of the false gods have been burnt down. You see, the people had not just lost personally, not only in terms of economically, their money, socially, but also religiously as well. And the idols that they had trusted, they were brought to see, were useless to help them when they needed it most. And they were angry, and they were resentful, and they were bitter about what had happened, and they wanted to take that out on someone. Someone needed to be blamed. Well, Nero quickly realized that he needed to direct the blame away from himself. He needed to find an enemy that the people could hate and redirect their hostility to. And so he chose Christians. And he spread the word as quickly and widely as he could that Christians were responsible for the fires. And Nero was able to frame that story well. Christians were already hated and slandered. They were seen as outsiders. They were seen as sympathizers to the Jews. They were unwilling to bow down in emperor worship, and they rejected the Roman gods. And so they were a natural enemy for Nero to choose. And they were also hated because their practices were closed to pagans. So, for example, the Lord's table was a vital part of the experience of those early believers, and they would meet in the catacombs to break bread. But it was only for those recognized and admitted and committed together. So those from outside, pagans, were not allowed to attend. 
And so when rumours came out about these Christians eating and drinking the blood of Christ, they were labelled as cannibals. Also, the early Christians would greet each other with a kiss, and they'd embrace one another. But pagans twisted this and spread lies that this was a sign that these Christians were engaging in disgusting immoral practices. In addition to this, the Lord had done a mighty work, particularly amongst the wives of many important Romans in society. And as these wives then rejected Roman gods and the culture that they should have embraced to follow Jesus... They were accused of being disrespectful and non-submissive to the husbands. You also had young people who had trusted Jesus, breaking connections with their Roman families to join the Lord's people. And so the gospel of Christ was seen as a divider of families and bringing conflict. It was also known that Christians spoke of a day of reckoning and judgment when the world would be consumed in flames. So all of these different factors came together so Nero could quite easily blame Christians for the fire that he had started. Now what this meant was this, that a period of severe persecution began against the Lord's people. There had already been instances of abuse and difficulty, but now it was on a totally different level. And so this dreadful emperor Nero brought a season of great difficulty to the Lord's people. And to give you some example, Christians were rolled in pitch and they were set alight and they were set alight while still alive so that they could be used as torches while Nero had his parties. He would clothe Christians in animal skins and set his dogs after them to hunt them down and rip them apart. They'd be nailed to crosses and lynched, and within weeks, believers were being imprisoned. They were being burned and stoned and hanged and lacerated with hot knives. It goes on. And you need to understand, as we come to this letter, just how savage the persecution was against the Lord's people at this time. And it wasn't just in Rome. The persecution against the Lord's people spread throughout the Roman Empire. Touching places that are mentioned in those opening verses like Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Affecting those that Peter calls aliens and strangers, it had a massive impact on their lives. And so this letter is written to brethren like that, facing those situations, those life or death situations, And it wasn't long after this that Peter would write this letter under the inspiration of the Spirit, written to believers who are outsiders in a hostile world and culture. Written a time when being a follower of Jesus would mean severe suffering and possibly even death. The heat was fierce against the followers of Jesus. And you see that, for example, chapter 1, verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. In chapter 2, verses 20, it says, when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. In chapter 3, who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? 
but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Chapter 4, therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. And then towards the end of the letter, but may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. And so you see that theme all the way through. You can see that the Lord's people needed to be encouraged. They needed to be strengthened in their suffering. You know, for those of you who know anything about Peter, he himself would be martyred and actually with his wife. And they'd be martyred for their faith in Christ and their proclamation of the gospel. And history tells us that Peter's death was cruel and not only that, but before he was crucified, he had to watch as his wife was crucified. And Eusebius, the ancient church historian, says that he stood at the foot of his wife's cross and he kept saying to her, remember the Lord, remember the Lord. And after she had died, he himself was then crucified and he pleaded to be crucified upside down because he was unworthy to die like his Lord. And so Peter is writing to these believers to teach them how to live triumphantly in the most hostile of times without losing heart. To persevere under pressure and persecution without giving in or becoming bitter. To realize where true hope in this life lies. Because the Lord Jesus is our Savior and he will always be with his people. And one day they will be with him forever and there'll be no more suffering. To keep that in view. And that's why Peter, when you read through the letter, he talks about final salvation so often. He talks about the second coming of Christ. He talks about the revelation of his glory when we shall see him. He speaks about when the chief shepherd will come and his people will receive a crown of glory that does not fade away. And so this letter points those who are suffering and who are struggling and facing severe trials to keep Jesus in view and the promise of his coming. The second coming, friends, is not just a, a theory. It's not just a point of theology. It is something that should impact us every day to live in the light of the fact that Jesus is coming again. And so this letter is full of wonderful truths. It speaks of the sovereignty of God. It speaks of election. It speaks of the importance and preciousness of the blood of Jesus. It speaks of the eternal inheritance of the believer. It talks about what true faith really is. It talks about holiness, the new birth, about growing in faith, about growing in the word. It talks about the priesthood of all believers it talks about how we should live as believers in the home and in the world. It talks about defending the faith and baptism and humility, casting our cares upon the Lord, seeing God's hand in all things, and so much more. It is a rich portion of Scripture, and it is written to those who needed to be encouraged. And I don't know about you, but I fall into that camp, and so I'm pleased that God in his grace has given us this letter. 
And so that's the, the way in which the letter is written and who it is written to, those in severe trial facing great danger. But what about the one who writes the letter? What about Peter? Well, I'm sure that many of us are familiar with Peter, but it says, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, we've seen in our time in Matthew that Peter really was the leader of the twelve. He's always listed first each time a list of apostles appears. And the apostles were a unique group of men, servants of Christ. They'd seen him, they knew him, and they had been with him following the resurrection. And Jesus had called them and sent them personally, direct apostles of Christ. And they were the foundation of the church. Think of Ephesians 2. It says that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And so the apostles laid the doctrinal foundation, receiving that direct revelation and then teaching and giving that revelation to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit on the pages of the New Testament. And Acts 2 tells us that the church, the early church, continued steadfastly in that doctrine, the apostles' doctrine. And it framed the whole teaching of the church. We also know that these men were examples of spiritual excellence. They're called, in Ephesians 3 and in Revelation 18, holy apostles. They were men apart. And their teaching was affirmed by great signs and wonders and mighty deeds. And these great miracles and miraculous things were there to mark out who the true servants of God were, attesting to the validity of what they were teaching and what is true. The Lord was affirming the truest, the purest representation of his truth. And friends, one thing that we can always say is this. God would never confirm error with signs and wonders. And that's true today as much as it has ever been. And these men, these apostles, they are eternally honored. And we see that in Revelation 21. But what about this man, Peter? The four gospels, well, they have so much in concerning Peter. In fact, if you were to go through the gospels, you'd find that the only person in the gospel records mentioned more than Peter is the Lord Jesus himself. And in the biblical record, as we see, the Lord speaks to Peter, directly recorded for us, more than any of the other disciples. And so sometimes he speaks to Peter to encourage him and to bless him, sometimes to rebuke him. And some of those rebukes, by the way, are very strong. Peter was also different in the way that he would question the Lord. He was often quick to speak, and then the consequences would come afterwards. And I suppose as we look at Peter, many of us like to identify with Peter. We can associate with him so much he's laid out concerning him and his strengths and his weaknesses and his humanity. And the way that the Lord dealt with him, all of those deep spiritual experiences, meant that Peter is so well equipped to speak to these suffering believers. And to speak to us, as well as the fact that he was so close to his master, the Lord Jesus. And so God wanted to establish Peter because the Lord had purposed for him to have a key role in the establishing of the church. You know, if you were to read through the, the first 12 chapters of Acts and see how central Peter is in all that takes place... 
the Lord would empower him, would enable him, and use him in quite remarkable ways. He shapes Peter. But you know something? As we look at Peter, we can also see that the Lord shapes his leaders today as well. And as we look at Peter's life and his experience, we can see how he shapes his leaders and what we should be praying for in our leaders, for a new generation of leaders. And so how does the Lord shape leaders as we see it with Peter? Well, the first thing to see is that the Lord chose Peter. The Lord calls him out and the Lord shapes a leader first by calling him to himself and choosing him out. The Lord Jesus calls out Peter and God saves and uses the whole man, his character and his personality. You know, Peter had qualities that the Lord would be able to use, including his ability to ask questions and to take initiative. Peter was always there in the midst of the action. The Lord would transform him by his grace. You know, it's worthwhile if you have opportunity to look at all the occasions that the Lord uses the names for Peter. Simon, Simon Peter, and Peter. And often when he uses those, the way in which he speaks to him brings with it a particular emphasis. So sometimes when he speaks to him as Simon, he's speaking to him as Simon the sinner. Simon Peter, somewhere in between, and then Peter as his servant. And we see that the Lord takes Simon the sinner and he makes him Peter, a sinner saved by grace, rock solid and firm. And by the time that he writes this letter, it's just Peter. No one could longer any doubt, be in any doubt over his devotion to Jesus Christ, his love for the church and his usefulness to the master, and he was to strengthen his brethren. So the Lord chooses, saves, and uses the whole man, those who are leaders. But also God makes a leader with biblical principles. You see, Peter had to be taught certain principles. He had to be taught submission to be an effective leader. You see, Peter was confident. He was extrovert. He was eager. But he needed to be taught submission in the various spheres of service. So Matthew 17, the Lord Jesus says, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first, and when you have opened its mouth, you'll find a piece of money, take that and give it to them for me and you. Now, we looked at that, didn't we, in Matthew's gospel, but maybe Peter wouldn't have been that concerned about Roman taxation, particularly as now he was about kingdom work, but Jesus taught him to be submissive to the authorities ordained of God. And you say, well, did Peter learn that lesson? Well, yes, he did. 1 Peter 2, verses 13 to 17, what does he write to these persecuted believers? Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, for this is the will of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. He learned the lesson and he then passes that lesson on to the Lord's people. Submission. Also restraint. You know there were times in his life that Peter was so unrestrained particularly in the gospels. Do you remember John 18? The soldiers they came to arrest Jesus and there were likely about 500 soldiers as well as the, the servants of the high priest and what does Peter do? 
Well, he grabs a sword and he cuts off the ear of Malchus. And friends, I've got to say, I don't think he was aiming for just the ear. But the Lord Jesus, he heals Malchus and then he rebukes Peter and he says, put that sword away. You live by the sword and you die by the sword. You see, Peter had to learn Christ-like restraint and to trust the Lord to overrule. And you say, well, did he learn the lesson? Yes, he did. 1 Peter 2, verses 21 to 23. Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. He'd seen that restraint demonstrated in the life of Jesus, and he learned the lesson. Submission, restraint, humility. Peter had to learn humility. And you say, well, did he learn that lesson? 1 Peter 5, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. He had to learn that it wasn't always about his, his own strength or his own initiative. He had to humble himself and depend upon the Lord. He had to learn courage and sacrifice. In Acts 4, Peter goes in front of the Sanhedrin and they want him to stop preaching about Jesus. How does he respond? He says, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. And so he had to learn all these ways of, of serving the Lord and, and dealing rightly in every situation. And following the Lord Jesus, preaching the gospel, will cost him his life, but he was faithful to the end. And he needed to learn love. He needed to learn to love Jesus and to love people. When he was restored, Jesus asked him three times in John 21, Do you love me? And the Lord wanted his love, not just his service. In John 13, Jesus was washing the disciples' feet. Peter didn't understand at first, but ultimately the Lord was teaching them to love. And he says, as I have loved you, you love one another. Did he learn? 1 Peter 4 verse 8, above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. And so all the way through, Peter was being taught these lessons, these principles, which would shape him as a leader, which he would then bring to the Lord's people and teach and show in his life. Submission, restraint, humility, courage, sacrifice, love, all of these things needed to be present. And you say, well, how does God make a leader today? Well, he takes them and he saves them. He saves the whole man. He shapes them. And he gives them biblical principles that transform the life, but also he gives them right experiences. And so Peter would have to learn all of these things. He would have to learn submission to battle the tendency to run ahead of the Lord. He would have to learn restraint so that he didn't overreact. He would have to learn humility to combat pride. He'd have to learn grace to deal with people, sacrifice to prefer others above self, and he needed to learn to love people and to strengthen them in the Lord and give them courage to face challenges. All these lessons, they needed faith to trust God 
in every situation. And that's what he would encourage these brethren with, to trust the Lord. And so God saves the man, he shapes the man with biblical principles, but he also makes the man and makes a leader by giving them the right experiences. You know, experiences teach us so much, and the Lord allowed Peter to face many experiences. He would be given revelation, he would have that role, he would be humbled, he would be allowed to know failure, and he would also be restored to greater usefulness. But as we draw it all together tonight, there's only one experience that I want us to focus on, and it's in Luke 22. And it's the sifting, the sifting of Peter. And hopefully you'll remember, but it's within the context of the Passover. And the Lord Jesus, as he longs to break bread with his disciples, he gives a beautiful promise to them. And he says in Luke 22, verses 28 to 39, he says, you are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, that's incredible. What a thing to be told. But then, the kingdom is not yet fully come. And there'll be trials and there'll be troubles. And it's then that Jesus says, in Luke 22, verses 31 to 32, Simon, Simon, Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. And I believe that one of the fulfillments of that promise and that command is 1 Peter and 2 Peter. The outworking of it. And a very severe trial was going to come to Peter only hours later and he will deny his saviour and he will fall badly. And from the promised joy of future kingdom and reigning with Christ to be in a pit of despair and bitterly weeping in one night. Friend, we often find that spiritual lows often follow spiritual highs. But we take heart because Jesus prays for his own and you'll never let Satan destroy our faith and hope. And Peter needed to learn that so that he could then be in a position later to encourage the brethren. And in verse 31 of Luke 22, he says, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you. Now in the original, the you there is plural. And Jesus is telling Simon Peter that Satan has actually demanded all the disciples he wants to sift them all like wheat. He wants all of their faith to fail. He's saying that Satan wants to throw them around and tear them apart so that they're so weak, so that they're so desperate that they'll let go of their faith and be back in his clutches. And so the sifting of Simon Peter and the others is Satan's effort to destroy their faith. And friends, that is something that is still the enemy's goal today. And Satan doesn't care. He doesn't care whether you're healthy. He doesn't care whether you're sick. He doesn't care whether you're suffering. He doesn't care whether you're rich. He doesn't care whether you're poor. He just cares that your faith is ruined, if you have faith. 
And when Peter fell so severely in denying the Savior that he loved, he would learn a deep, painful lesson that 30 years later he would write in 1 Peter 5, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And this experience that Peter was given to go through impressed upon him the fact that the victory can only come through faith in Christ and looking to him. Think of Revelation 2 and verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. You see, Peter came to see in his own experience in, in dealing with others that the believer's only hope is to keep remembering and looking to Jesus. It's that simple. By faith in him, we are upheld and we are sustained even when Satan desires to ruin us. And more than that, God's word gives us certain hope. Friends, we need so much encouragement in our daily struggles. That's true now as it has ever been. And to know that in times of suffering, in times of weakness, that we won't abandon the faith and curse God. We need some reassurance that in all the ups and downs of our faith and our walk with the Lord, it won't just end someday in a permanent down where we're gone utterly. Jesus gives that encouragement and reassurance to Peter and to us in Luke twenty-two thirty-two, when he says, I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And ultimately, that's sort of written large over this whole first letter that we're in the Lord's hands. It's so encouraging, brethren, to know that Jesus has triumphed and that in him we will be brought through to glory. You know, you may well have been in a deep valley. You may well have been struggling on and think, how on earth can I go on? But it's not in you. It's in what the Lord does and in how he holds you, how he will keep you. And it's doubly encouraging that the Lord doesn't stand back as some say that he does. But the Lord doesn't stand back watching to see if somehow we'll come through and that we'll summon up enough strength to endure. He doesn't look at it like that. It isn't like that. That's not a, a biblical way of seeing things at all. Friend, if the Trinity were not involved in saving and keeping us and sustaining and strengthening our faith, every moment it would disappear. And Jesus says, I prayed for you. I prayed for you. It's interesting that when Jesus says that, the you goes down to just being about Simon. And he says, I prayed for you, that your faith won't fail, that God will do what is necessary to preserve you. And so sure of the answer, so sure that the Peter will be brought through, Jesus then says, when you've returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Jesus knows that Simon is going to deny him but he doesn't consider that brief denial to be the utter failure that Satan wants. It's a temporary weakness. It's a faltering of confidence, but it is followed by tears of repentance and coming back to the Savior. 
And Jesus knew that he would turn from his sin because he prayed for him that his faith would not fail. And though Satan was permitted to sift Simon, the Lord held him through it all and brought him through just as he will with all his children. And Peter learned that not only is God willing and able to save forever all who trust him, but he also conspires with the Son to keep us trusting to the end. And we are not left without a shield against the enemy, nor are we left to somehow hold this shield of faith in our own strength. God will always see to it that faith has the victory and that his children have that faith. You say, well, how soon does that appear in the letter? Look at verses 3 to 5 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept. And how are they kept? Is it by your power? No. By the power of God, through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter was brought to see that the almighty power of God guards us for our eternal salvation by working in us that perseverance of faith in answer to the prayer of Jesus. And that's how he knew as he wrote to these dear brothers and sisters who were suffering so much that God would keep them and that God would sustain them that no one would snatch them out of the Savior's hand, that no one would snatch them from the Father's hand, that the Lord's people are held fast even in the darkest valleys, even when Nero and rulers like Nero try to expel them from the face of the earth. Jesus said, Simon, I prayed for you. My Father and I have conspired to hold you tight. Your faith will not fail. That same promise is for all of God's children. And Peter, he is the one who is the strengthened, and he goes on to strengthen others. And it was this experience, that, that night of agony, where God broke the back of Peter's pride and his self-reliance, that God shaped him so that he could then minister to these brethren. And the Lord brought him through and turned him around and forgave him and restored him and strengthened his faith. And now Peter was to strengthen others. First the other disciples, and then later the brethren in the church, and even us. Even us on this night, we are encouraged because of Peter's experience and the way that the Lord kept him. And sometimes in our Christian lives, God deals with us directly, strengthening our faith alone, but a great deal of the time he also strengthens our faith through our brothers and sisters. He sends us some Simon Peter, as it were, who brings just the word of grace that we need to keep on in the faith. Brings us some encouragement, some testimony about how weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And that encouragement, that growth, that assurance also has a family element to it as well. We are to strengthen one another in the Lord. That's part of why the local church is so vital. 
We are to strengthen one another, to walk alongside one another, to hold one another up, to strengthen one another's hands in the Lord, as Peter was doing as he wrote to these suffering brethren. And whenever God encourages your heart with the promise that even though trials may come, though Satan will come to sift you, your faith will not fail, I encourage you, brothers and sisters, take that encouragement and share it with someone else. And be a strengthener to them. And to say, I know it's hard. I know that we've gone through these things. But Jesus holds us. And he holds us and he will keep us. It's a great blessing when there's fellowship like that. And we need leaders like that. We need leaders who have been called out. We need leaders who have got biblical principles. We need leaders who have deep experience with the Lord. And we need to pray for that. And we need to pray that the Lord would provide them here and in life and the service of this place. Those who are of quality and maturity and depth in the word and rich experience. Peter was a man touched by sovereign grace. It captured his heart and God made him a glorious ambassador for the kingdom. Do you know, when I think of Peter, I often think of the hymn that we're going to sing as we finish. And particularly the words that say this. O cross that liftest up my head, I dare not ask to fly from thee. I lay in dust, life's glory's dead, and from the ground there blossoms red life that shall endlessly be. And as Peter lay in the dust, as it were, God picked him up and kept picking him up to make him the man that he wanted him to be. And thousands were saved because of his life and are still being saved under God's hand through his teaching. This is the man who was a rock. This is the man who writes this wonderful letter. This is the man who, God willing, his heart will see in these coming weeks. Amen.